This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. All right, you can put your finger in there and put that to the side. You're going to need it later, towards the end, okay? Indeed, this is our Father's world. We're in Acts chapter 23, and we had ambitions to get all all the way midway through chapter 24, but we're just not going to make it there. We're going to make it to the end of chapter 23, so it's going to be verses 11 through 35 this morning. And one of the great benefits of working systematically through books of the Bible is that we have to grapple with and we get to recognize prominent themes that come to us again and again and again. And that theme that's kind of on repeat at this point in the book of Acts is God's providence. It's so prominent that, in fact, we're going to reuse our main idea from last week, which is this, if you don't remember it, that God has planned your life for his glory. Therefore, and this is the exhortation, you are to live with confidence in God's providence. Well, last week we talked about how God had been preserving Paul's life through all these various mechanisms. Specifically last week we saw it through his Roman citizenship and through his Pharisaical upbringing. And this week we will see God continue to preserve Paul's life, this time by way of an unknown nephew and a clandestine escape from a conspiracy. It really is dramatic and exciting. And all the way through, we get a picture of just how great God is. Just how much he cares about Paul and about you and about me. God micromanages your life. He cares. He's involved. He's planned your life for his glory. And so there'll be four main parts, and the biggest part will, the, will be the first one. It'll be really long, and you'll be like, oh my goodness, we're, we're in the first verse. There's a bunch more to go. Don't freak out, all right? We're going we're gonna to be done on time. Uh, but So I think the outline goes like this. Uh, the insert will return eventually one day here. Uh, but um, we're going to see the comfort of Christ to Paul, the conspiracy of the Jews against Paul, the conspiracy exposed by Paul's nephew, and Paul's clandestine escape through the work of a Roman commander. Let's pray and we'll begin our time together this morning. Father, we need you. We need to hear from you and come before you confessing that this week, once more, we we lived imperfect lives. We confess once more that we, we need 
our perfect Savior. We thank you that you have given Jesus to us so that we might be with you. Lord, we thank you for your grace which you have given sinners like us. We, we do not deserve to come before you as our King, let alone as our Father. And yet you have called us your sons and daughters. Lord, our hearts are filled with gratefulness at this wonderful truth. We ask that you would speak clearly to us through your word, that we wouldn't hear the voice of a mere man, but that we would be hearing your very words this morning. Father, I ask that you would help me to preach a better sermon than I prepared, and that you would help this congregation to listen even better than I preach. Lord, we want to hear from you. And we pray that the result of this time spent in your word would be our edification and a sense that we had been in your intimate presence. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So at this point in Acts, remember, Paul has entered into Jerusalem knowing that he was going to suffer and be bound. And that has happened Rumors and lies were told about him. Jews from Ephesus and Asia had come up and they've stirred up a mob against Paul. They were ready to kill him. They wanted him wiped off the face of the earth. And then in stepped the Roman commander and some Roman soldiers. They wanted to break up this tiff and this mob. And so they saved Paul's life. And as they took him to the top of the stairs, which led to the barracks where Paul would be imprisoned, Paul clarified, hey, I am not the Egyptian insurrectionist. You know that, right? And the guard said, no, I didn't know that. Who are you? I'm a Jewish man. I'm Paul from an important city. Can I address the people? The Roman commander thinks, okay. And so Paul begins speaking to those who are calling for his death in Aramaic. And it gets really quiet. And in his speech... His defense speech, this is what makes up, there's five defense speeches that make up the back end of Acts here, predominantly. And in this one, he says three things that are really important. He says, I am a Jew who used to persecute Christians. I, I have been where you are. I used to persecute this way, just like you are persecuting me. Secondly, he says, but then I met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and that changed my whole life. I recognized that Judaism is the root that produces the fruit that is Christianity. That all of the promises made in the Old Testament find their yes in Christ. That our hope in the resurrection, well, it's arrived in Jesus he says, this Jesus too, and this is the third thing, he commissioned me to preach the gospel, not just to Jews, but to the whole world. Specifically to Gentiles, to non-Jews. His promise includes not just us, but all who will repent of their sins and believe in Christ. And when Paul mentions that the promise of God goes also to the Gentiles, the, the Jewish crowd freaks out. They get into a frenzy. They, they tear their clothing. They're looking for stones to throw at Paul, but they can't. They can just get clouds of dust. and throw these handfuls of dust at him. 
And they say in verse 22 of chapter 22, wipe this man off the face of the earth. He should not be allowed to live. The commander takes Paul and plans to scourge him. Remember, scourging is they've got that whip with the thongs that come out, and it's got pieces of of metal and of bone, and they would stretch you out, and they'd rake this across your back, and it was designed to just rip your flesh right off of your body. A terrible punishment that left people maimed or killed them. And they're about to, to do this to Paul as they once did to Jesus. And Paul poses this question to the centurion. He says, is it legal for you to scourge a man who is a Roman citizen and is uncondemned? And everybody says, we've made a really big mistake. Because being a Roman citizen was really special and it protected you from punishment such as scourging. And so now the Roman commander has to reevaluate his plan. He wants to figure out what's going on. He thinks Paul has stirred up some trouble. And so his punishment of Paul, his plan to get information out of Paul, isn't going to work anymore. The, the torture method is not working out. And so he says, you know what I'll do is I'll call together the Sanhedrin. I'll put Paul before them, and then we'll figure out what's going on. He does this, and, and Paul, with a brilliant master stroke, says, the only reason I'm before you Pharisees and Sadducees, the two groups that make up the Sanhedrin, is simply because of my belief in the resurrection of the dead. Now, if we know our, our Jewish history, we know that the Sadducees were Sadducee, right? Because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Whereas the Pharisees believed that the resurrection was a possibility. They just thought that they would come at the end of time. You see, what's happened is it's been moved forward in time as Jesus Christ has risen as the first fruits of the resurrection. Right? Not many of us are farmers, right? But, but there's this idea that the first fruits start to crop up, up from out of the ground. And that's a guarantee that there's more to come. And Jesus has risen from the dead and, and his resurrection guarantees, it forecasts, it previews the resurrection of all who have trusted in him. Paul says, it's because I believe in the hope of resurrection that I'm here. And so what he does is he's identifying with the Pharisees and he's also kind of saying, hey, look, the proper end of Judaism, the proper end of Pharisaical Judaism is the Christianity that I believe. And so he's, he's the old-fashioned dividing and conquering. The Pharisees and the Sadducees feel the pressure he is putting on this point of theological contention and they go after one another. And Paul has to be removed because they're ready to tear him apart. So he's rushed back to the barracks where we come to find him this morning in verse 11. Verse 11 of chapter 23. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Have courage. For as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. Paul is clearly discouraged here. It's why Jesus shows up in the same way that he did back in Corinth. And you can understand why Paul might be discouraged. Things are not going really well. He's facing afflictions and he's imprisoned. And it's so easy to be discouraged. And we can all relate to that. 
find ourselves quickly discouraged or downcast when the concerns of this world weigh on us a little bit more heavily than they ought. It's easy to become discouraged. And so, so Jesus shows up to encourage Paul in the great work to which he has called him. He says, take courage, cheer up. You are not only going to live, you're going to testify about me in Rome. I have more work for you to do. I'm not done with you yet, so you're not allowed to die yet, Paul. Chin up, cheer up. I am the ruler of the world. You might be in prison, but I hold the keys of death and Hades. I am in control. You might feel very weak right now, but my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul, things are going exactly according to my providential plan. Jesus encourages Paul where he is, but he does not deliver him from where he is. He leaves him in chains. I think contemporary theology, wayward contemporary theology, might have this story going a little bit differently. They would have Jesus showing up and saying something along the lines of, Paul, you're in chains. This is not my plan for you. You see, if you just believe a little harder, if you put more faith in me, then you won't suffer. My plan isn't for you to suffer or to get sick or to have anything bad happen to you. My plan is for you to prosper, to be healthy, to be wealthy. These chains, they're the consequence of your own unbelief, Paul. Believe a little bit more. Maybe like Peter did, and you could have an angelic jailbreak. We can be at the Waffle House in 20 minutes. Come on, conjure it up. I think you've heard this. That message is from hell. It presumes that God is holding out on his people. And that God is somehow out of control of your life and dependent on you and your faith. He's not. God is sovereign. He's not holding out on you. This idea that we have to believe enough so that we might gain God's favor or his blessing. God wants to bless you, but he can't because you're just not believing enough. No, God blesses who he wants to bless. He lives in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And he's orchestrated everything in your life and in Paul's life for your good and for his glory. Sometimes his providence is surprising. It doesn't make a ton of sense to us, but it's always for our best. God's favor is not about your current circumstances. It is about Jesus. You cannot measure how much God loves and accepts or favors you by taking stock of your material goods. The way you measure God's favor with you is by whether or not you are married to Christ. It's by whether or not you are united to Christ by faith. Because if you are 
in Christ, then every spiritual blessing, Ephesians 1, is yours. All of the love of God. Grace upon grace is yours. God looks at you as he looks at Jesus and says, Behold my beloved son, behold my beloved daughter, with whom I am well pleased. Favor is not earned by having more faith. Right? In the same way, you can't be more or less married to your spouse. Like, um, so Yoda says in Star Wars, um, do or do not, there is no try. When it comes to your faith in Christ, your faith is in Christ or it is not. You have the favor of God by virtue of your faith in Christ or you do not. There is no gradation inside where you somehow get more of God because of your great faith. No, 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 no. We receive God's grace as a gift Because God is good. Our salvation is the result of God's great grace, not our great faith. Friends, it is not the amount or the strength of our faith that saves, but the object of our faith. Where our faith is. You've seen those um, those climbing walls, right? You know, the ones you get like, put up in that really awkward harness and you climb to the top and like ring the bell and you come down. I've done a couple of them in my life, maybe to some of your surprise, uh, but I, I am afraid of heights. I'll, I'll confess it, it's okay. Some of you maybe struggle with the same way. And so every time I do this, and Lord knows why I do it, I go and I look at that awkward harness and I'm like, nobody looks cool in that. Weird. And I look up at like that towering wall. I'm like, oh gosh, it's high. I'm afraid of heights. And I look over and it's usually like a teenager that's holding the belay. I'm like, really? I'm going to entrust my life to that guy? I don't have a whole lot of confidence in this system. And for whatever reason, you know, I hook up, I look really uncool, and I start to climb up ever so slowly and shake up to the top. But do you know what? My, how much I believe in that equipment is irrelevant to the situation. You see, what matters is the strength of the rope the strength of the person holding the rope, and the ability of the awkward harness to hold me. See, it's not the amount of my faith that's going to save me from falling. It's the object of my faith, what my faith is in, this rope, this this teenage kid I don't know, and the awkward harness. You see, the point is not the amount of your faith that saves, it's who your faith is in. And if your faith is in Jesus, then you are entirely saved. He's mighty to save. It doesn't matter if you have boulder-sized faith in Jesus. You're saved. Or if you have itty-bitty mustard seed faith in Jesus. Mustard seed faith is saving faith. Because Jesus can save anyone. And all you need to do is come and put your little bitty poor faith in Christ. And he is powerful enough to deliver you from all your sins powerful enough to give to you the favor of God. Friends, God's love for you, his favoring of you, is not about where you are. It's about who you are. God's favor in your life 
Your relationship with God is about who you are. It's not about where you are. So to pick up the, the marriage illustration once more. If, if I go away from Chelsea, it's fall, I go up to Morgantown sometimes, and I'm there, I'm like, well, Chelsea's not here. My circumstances have changed a little bit. Uh, I'm just hanging out, watching some football. Guess I'm not married. Well, no, I've, I've moved somewhere else, but our relationship is a covenant relationship. We still love one another. Circumstances have changed, but we're still married. Or likewise, if she goes to Carolina to Raleigh and takes all my kids and I'm sitting at home in, in a house in, in that blissful, blissful peace, and quiet. I go, oh man, think, something's just not right. Like, I don't cease to be married to her because my circumstance has changed from chaos to, to peace. No, we're still, we're still married because where I am physically does not negate the promises that we've made to one another relationally. Are you tracking with me? Where you are circumstantially does not tell the whole story about where you are with God relationally. Situation is a bad way to evaluate relationship. So if, if you are in a really difficult space in your life and you conclude things are rough, God must not care about me, he must not love me, that's really bad theological math. You cannot evaluate God's love and care for you on the basis of your current circumstances. Stop putting your eyes on the world and the things that are fading and lift them to glory. Look at the long game. Recognize that God is at work even if you don't understand how and that he might be a little smarter than you. Trust him. Don't doubt in the darkness of life's trials what God has promised you in the light. Cling to his promises. Believe in him. Paul is not in prison because of a lack of faith. Not looking around going, God must not love me. That's why I'm in prison. No, no, don't believe that you look at his life and you go, how could God love this guy? Right? Shipwrecks, riots, stoned, imprisoned. But he's not in prison because of a lack of faith. He's not in prison because God doesn't love him. He's in prison because that's where God wants him to be. From this prison, these chains will be the vehicle through which Paul gets to Rome, testifies, shares the gospel with some of the most powerful officials in the world at the time. It's how Paul is going to be able to sit down with a pen and a pad and write large portions of the New Testament. This is how Paul is going to learn the secret of contentment, which is steadfast. Trust in Christ. That famous passage in Philippians that's always taken out of context. Philippians 4, starting verse 11. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. 
in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. Paul, how can you be content no matter what the circumstance is? I'll tell you, verse 13. I'm able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see what he's saying? I can face each and every circumstance because I have Jesus and Jesus is all satisfying. He's all I need to be happy. He's not saying, hey, I can do anything I want through Christ who strengthens me. I can leap tall buildings in a single bound if I believe hard enough. I can win each and every athletic competition that I enter myself into. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, I can endure because I have Jesus. Friends, do not confuse God's favor, his love, his acceptance of you with your current circumstances. And perhaps this morning you feel like you are in terrible circumstances. Maybe you are. Maybe you feel like you are in prison as Paul was. Friend, look to the cross. Look to Jesus. See the crown of thorns pressed upon his head. See the blood trickling down his face. Behold the nails in his hands and in his feet. And remember, it's for you. Look to the cross and remember that he died for your sin. And look to, to the empty tomb and remember that he is risen and that he is returning. This is one of the many reasons I love the Lord's Supper is that it causes us to stop and meditate, causes us to look back at what Christ has done for us and to look forward to what Christ has promised us in the new heavens and the new earth proclaims his death and resurrection. This is a glorious, glorious truth. Don't confuse God's favor and his love with your current circumstances. He is faithful and he has planned for you to be right where you are. You can trust him and live faithfully there. And I told you that first point was going to be long, so let's move to the second one. Verse 12, when it was morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who had formed this plot. These men went to the chief priest and the elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a solemn curse that we won't eat anything until we have killed Paul. So now you, along with the Sanhedrin, make a request to the commander that he bring him down to you as if he were going to investigate his case more thoroughly. But before he gets near, we are ready to kill him. Paul's comment about the high priest being a whitewashed wall or a hypocrite is not too far from the truth. As we see his followers following in his hypocrisy, the apple has not fallen too far from the, the proverbial tree. They are so caught up in their anger against Paul that they cannot recognize their hypocrisy. Like, they're saying, this is their plan. 
we need to kill Paul because he's anti-Jew and he's anti-law. And the way we do this is by killing him, a Jew, in violation of Jewish law. You see the the contradiction, the, the inconsistency there, right? It's a terrible plan. And yet, they move forward with it. The sections of Scripture like this are not occasions for us to wag our fingers and shake our heads. You guys got it so wrong and so backwards. They should be occasions for us to look in the mirror, evaluate ourselves, and to be warned. I think three quick warnings I take from these four verses. First, be careful not to confuse what you want with God's will. Be careful not to confuse what you want with God's will. We can justify almost any wrong as if it were right. Second, anger cannot see straight. When you are angry, you make bad decisions. Thirdly, hypocrisy loves company. Hypocrisy loves company. What I mean by that is when we have an inconsistency in our lives, we don't typically seek someone out to correct that from us, for us. Typically, we find other people who agree with us and also embrace that same inconsistency. Friends, we want to be a people who guards ourselves against hypocrisy, guards ourselves against inconsistent living by resolving to correct one another and to be corrected. This is what Paul writes about in Galatians 6. In verse 1, he says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, You who are spiritual, that's you who believe in Christ, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens, and this way you fulfill the law of Christ. this, This situation could have been diffused so easily if someone among these Jews would have just taken the moment to to pray and to examine the Scriptures, taken a moment to say, "Um, Brothers, I don't think that this would honor God. Asking him to kill us if we eat or drink anything before we kill, that is murder, Paul. Right? Like, look, this is, this is the sixth commandment. Just a simple correction. Nobody's there offering correction. And so I just think a, a simple lesson is for us to resolve, to say, hey, I am going to welcome correction in my life so that I don't get caught up in foolish sins like this. And on the flip side, to say, I'm going to be the kind of person who lovingly and gently, as Paul says in Galatians 6, restores a wayward brother or sister in Christ. The conspiracy has been born, and there doesn't seem to be any stopping it. That is, until we get to verse 16. But the son of Paul's sister, hearing about their ambush, came and entered the barracks and reported it to Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander because he has something to report to him. So he took him, brought him to the commander and said, The prisoner Paul called me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand, led him aside and inquired privately, What is it that you have to report to me? The Jews, he said, have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the Sanhedrin tomorrow 
as though they were going to hold a somewhat more careful inquiry about him. Don't let them persuade you, because there are more than 40 of them lying in ambush. Men who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they kill him. Now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the commander dismissed the young man and instructed him, don't tell anyone about this. We should marvel at God's providence here. This young nephew of Paul who is nameless, we don't know anything else about him, just happens to hear this information, just happens to get it to Paul. He just happens to eventually get it to the Roman commander. The Roman commander just happens to eventually get Paul out of Dodge. God is orchestrating all of this. His providential hand is at work. And notice what Paul's nephew doesn't do. He doesn't hear the information, and then go, you know, I really need to just wait on the Lord to figure out his direction in my life. I need to figure out if God wants me to take this information to somebody or to not do it. No, no, he acts. You see, God's providence works hand in glove with our prudence. It does not abrogate it. I think sometimes we use waiting on the Lord as a spiritual Trojan horse in which we carry our fears and our anxieties. And ultimately it becomes a phrase not about our trust in God, but about our distrust in his providence. Friends, there comes a time when you have to act. You have to do something. And God tells us in his word what he requires of us morally, how he desires that we live. It doesn't tell us if we should choose Pepsi or Coke. Right? Sometimes you have to make decisions. Ultimately, God's will for you is to seek first the kingdom of God, to seek Christ. And if you are doing that while you make other decisions wisely, you honor God. That's what Paul's nephew does here. He says, I've got this information. It makes good sense to take it to Paul. That's what I'm going to do. And it ends up thwarting this whole conspiracy. Verse 23, the commander summoned two of his centurions and said, get 200 soldiers ready with 70 cavalry and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. He wrote the following letter, Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man had been seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, I arrived with my troops and rescued him because I learned that he is a Roman citizen. Wanting to know the charge they were accusing him of, I brought him down before their Sanhedrin. I found out that their accusations were concerning questions of their law and that there was no charge that merited death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there was a plot against the man, I sent him to you right away. I also ordered his accusers to state their case against him in your presence. So the soldiers took Paul during the night and brought him to Antipateris as they were ordered. The next day they returned to the barracks, allowing the cavalry to go on with him. When these men entered Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. After he read it, he asked what province he was from. When he learned it was Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing whenever your accusers also get here. He ordered that he be kept under guard in Herod's palace. 
you can just see how dramatic the scene is, right? If it were a movie, uh, there would be um, montage music, just really dramatic, maybe some piano, and the camera would be on Paul, like sitting in prison on the floor, just waiting. And you'd see flashes of the soldiers' hands grabbing their weapons and just gearing up to go. Maybe torches going through the night sky, and the music was, would build until it stops, and there's like a knock on Paul's door, and the door swings open. It's time. Let's go. We move now. It really is dramatic. You've got 470 soldiers escorting Paul out of Jerusalem to Caesarea. Why so many? I don't know. Maybe it was a show of Roman strength. Maybe they were afraid of an ambush and a riot, and they just wanted to make it really plain that nothing bad was going to go down, that Paul was safe. But they're sending him to Caesarea, and they send him with this letter, which is also probably part of the movie montage. You like see Lysias down at his table just writing this letter to Felix as they're, they're getting ready to move Paul. And two things stick out to me in the letter. First is it's kind of dishonest. Right? Lysias leaves out these parts about like, oh, I thought Paul was an Egyptian insurrectionist, and then I had him stretched out. I was about to scourge him, but I didn't. Right? No, it's just, well, I recognize Paul as a Roman citizen, and so I saved him. He paints himself in the best possible light. He does what people do. I couldn't help when reflecting on this to think how like Lysias we are. Especially if you think about social media, you're posting the best pictures of yourself and everything's happy all the time. I'm not saying that you post pictures of your, you know, hey, this is my latest fight with my spouse. Like, I'm not saying that. I am saying there is this idol in most of us to be really, really impressive. To get the approval of others. To be really, really well-liked so that when people see us, they think, whew, impressive. Approve of that person. And I just, the point here edit some of this out for you. The the big point here is stop worrying about being so doggone impressive. You have God's approval. He loves you. You You're not going to impress him, okay? You're known and loved by Jesus and his church. I have bad news for some of you, maybe. If you are a member of this church, we all know your secret. You're not that impressive. We know that you're a mess and that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. So it doesn't make any sense for you to, in in one breath, say, I am a sinner. I need Jesus Christ as my Savior. He delivers me from my sins. And then in the next breath, to say, hey, everybody, look how awesome I am, right? You don't don't have to earn the approval of others. You have the approval of God. Stop worrying about being so impressive. Second thing from the letter. Paul is declared innocent. There's no charge that merits death or imprisonment. Verse 29. 
And the innocence of Paul here cannot help but send our minds to another place. To another person. Can't help but see in our mind's eye Pilate standing before the people and saying, as is my custom, I will release one prisoner to you. Should it be Jesus, the king of the Jews, or Barabbas, the insurrectionist and the murderer? I can't help but hear the cries of the crowd say, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. And he says, what should I do with Jesus? And they say, crucify him. Crucify him. It is such a poignant picture of the gospel, is it not? The guilty lives and the innocent dies. The wicked goes free. And the most glorious person who ever lived goes to an ignominious end on a filthy cross. Jesus gives his life so the guilty can live. I mean, this is the gospel. Jesus didn't go to the cross because he didn't have enough faith. He went to the cross because he had perfect faith. Because he, in God's providence, was to save his people through his substitutionary death and his glorious resurrection. Friends, Paul didn't suffer because of a lack of faith, but because of his faithfulness. Indeed, God's providence is often surprising, but it is always best. It was best in Jesus' life, it was best in Paul's life, and it is best in your life no matter where you are. And remember that God is sovereign. That indeed, He rules the world. And so if you would turn with me in your hymnal to page 75, we'll sing verse 3 together once more before we take the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is my Father's world, oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler, yet. This is my Father's world, the battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be 